This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's guest, Jordan Harbinger. This is a uh, a big gotcha guest for me. I've been wanting to get this guy for a while, so I'm proud to have him here. He's one of the most popular podcasts, host of one of the most popular podcasts in the world today, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Former Wall Street lawyer, he speaks five different languages, has been kidnapped twice, and is an expert in networking and has really some profound concepts around network that I think are interesting we'll dive into today. So Jordan, man, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Can we start real quick? I want to just sort of like sure. tie a quick bow on a couple of things in there that just feel like they need to be addressed. Kidnapping. You were kidnapped twice. Can you give us the quick, quick rundown? Yeah, I've definitely, I've done the full like two hour version of this on my show uh, a couple of years ago. But yeah, the quick version is 20 plus years ago, was in Mexico, got into a fake taxi, turned into a attempted abduction. But I was 20. All I did was eat taco, carne asada tacos twice a day, go to the gym twice a day. Work out twice, you know, twice. This dude is like 55 plus, 59, whatever year old cab driver sat on his ass all day, drove all day, ate burritos all day. So he, he didn't come out on top of that one because I basically just didn't let him get out of the car. And sure. I was young and I just ran away after a, a physical altercation. That was, so that's not really like I was abducted by ninjas from state security and you know it was it was just like some schlub thought he could probably take me to a bunch of ATMs. 20, I didn't know that in the moment though. I thought, "Oh, am I going to get chopped up into little pieces or what? Sure. You know, is this a cult sacrifice? Am I going to get sold to, <laughs> you know, what is this?" But it 2020 hindsight, it was almost certainly just going to be like a really lame robbery, but sure. you know, people die during robberies, so and worse. So I'm I'm good on not having to have gone through that. The second one was a little bit more involved. Uh, I was in Serbia, former Yugoslavia, great place, a lot of friends there. I always say that because people get mad if they're from Serbia. They're like, why are you only telling bad stories? But I got marked as a spy by their paranoid police bureaucracy because of some behavior that I had in the country, namely going in and out a lot, living there, not telling the police where I live. There's not a whole lot of foreigners, especially Americans, just living in Serbia for 14 months at a time. So they were like, what are you really doing here? And then I had money coming in that was paid for by the US government because I was on this kind of fellowship. And they're like, we just, you're a spy, you know, just admit it. All my friends jokingly would be like, you're a spy, you're a spy, you're a spy. Um, but of course that that was fun until the police thought I was a spy. And then like the state security, their version of the FBI thought I was a spy. And then uh, caught up with a friend of mine and, and arrested us and at a concert and stuff like that, took us to a safe house. So that was a whole thing. We managed to escape because the guys got super wasted. Um, in classic third world Eastern European slash Balkan fashion, they just got super, super, super wasted. And we managed to finagle an opportunity to get out of there. They, they left, but I, they were just, they were wasted. So they didn't think like, gee, when we leave, maybe the guys we kidnapped will leave. We just kind of acted like we were not able to do that. And I mean, 2020 hindsight again, total idiots just some got of the lucky. Worst kidnappers in the world. You had some of the worst. Some of the worst, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is, a, it was, I remember ta talking to people about this and being like, 
So why am I still around? These are your state security officers and then actual police and state security people were like, dude, these guys are all idiots. It was a big mistake. The guys that found you are complete dipshits. They're not like trained guys. They're just sort of militia guys from Bosnia that have badges now because of pol politics. Like they're idiots. These are, they, they were, their day job officially is working in a potato chip factory on the assembly line. Like these are not, and no shade to people who work in potato chip factory on the assembly line, but it's not where you send your Harvard grads, generally right. speaking. And so they just sent two losers, and these losers kind of like happened upon us at this concert, took us in, and either were instructed to let us go or we finagled the escape opportunity. Obviously, the story is better if I finagle an escape opportunity, but I don't know who would have told them. It's not like, I mean, they had our cell phones, but I don't know how they would have gotten in touch with people at that hour where we were, et cetera. So, you know, it, it just, it was, it was dumb. And they ended up apologizing, which is so weird. But I also was like, you know what? This place kind of sucks now, you've got, you've got <laughs> to say the least. You've got a story forever. And what I love is you, you uh, uh, attempted to insult Serbia and potato chip uh, factory workers or whatever, but you walk it back, man. I you walked it back. You got this all down. I love it. Yeah. Love it. The, the uh, odds of you having a Serbian potato chip assembly line worker listening to this is pretty low. That's 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 uh, your gay. He's yeah, your gay. Your yeah. also your producer. I don't know what that is. Your moonlighting. Moonlighting is a uh, yeah. As a as a potato chip name. factory assembly line it's worker. Sergey, not your gay, right? I you said your gay though. I'm pretty sure. I know. I know. I, yeah, yeah, which sounds a little bit like something else, but whatever. Freud <laughs> Freud was wrong about everything. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Let's go back to what intrigues me about you. Uh, you know, we were a similar age, 43, 44 years old, uh, and, and sort of left corporate sort of careers for, for something that we felt was more purposeful. Now I did yeah. that in the last few, you did this a long time ago. Yeah. So in 08, you're a lawyer, you're working on wall street and you're fired in the great recession. 08, 09, somewhere yeah. in laid off. Come on, buddy. Laid <laughs> off. <My bad>. <laughs> let's laid let's off. put the kid gloves on for that one. I was 26, but, 27. And you got a severance. You got a full year severance. I so I know it was truly a layoff. And in that time, you decided to build a coaching company that did like $700,000 in its first year in a recession. That sounds right. Yeah. I, it's funny you have those numbers because I, I definitely would not have remembered that. But I, yeah, we got laid off. I'd already started the podcast when I was a law student. The podcast that would then become the, the I, I do the Jordan Harbinger show now, but I had a couple of other sort of shows that sort of built audience and evolved into this one. It wasn't always called the Jordan Harbinger show because um, my ego was a normal size back then and I didn't name things after myself. Well, yeah. But um, but I started the show, built a little bit of the audience. And then when I got laid off, I was like, oh my God, I'm so screwed. What am I gonna do? I gotta get another job that I don't even want. And it, it was interesting because I went out with a friend of mine who, was, who went to middle school and high school with me. And he was also a lawyer and he'd also got laid off. And he goes, this is a guy who, I, he wasn't a good singer. He wasn't a great guitar player. He wasn't, he was musically inclined, but it wasn't anything like, wow, this guy's great. He told me, well, you can get another job you don't want, but I'm gonna go for it, man, with music. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, this is the time. I'm 26 years old, and I was 27, or I think, you know, whatever. And he's like, this is the time. No responsibility, recession. You can either get another job as a, at, a, at a law firm that you don't even want, or you can go for it, man, and that's what I'm gonna do. And I thought, if this delusional idiot thinks he's gonna go up and be Paul Simon with a harmonica on a little metal thing and playing the guitar and belting out remix Bob Dylan tunes on Tuesday open mic night and he's got the guts to go for this, I should at least pay some lip service 
pretend like I wanna be in the game of starting this coaching company because by that point, my podcast was doing well. I'd already been picked up by Sirius XM Satellite Radio where I was doing my Friday drive time show Mm -hmm. in Times Square which was like, if you're doing a nighttime but not at midnight show, you know, I'm doing a drive time show in at Sirius XM, at the time I think it was only just Sirius, in Times Square with a studio, with a producer, every Friday. I actually, it's kind of like, I'm the one who's got to fight, I'm the one who has some indications that this isn't a waste of my time, and yet you're the one with the guts. And I was like, I'm gonna feel pretty dumb if Charlie over here ends up with a CD and I got a job because I took all the signs that were right in front of me and I was like, nah, due to imposter syndrome. And I wasn't really thinking that clearly at that point, but it was like, I gotta give this a shot because I am I actually have a potential to succeed here according to other people. This guy has no evidence that he's gonna be good at any of this and he's still going for it. So I decided to do that and, and just start the coaching company. We already had a few clients. I was like, let's just put gas on the fire. So I took my severance and I lived on it for a really long time, a couple of years while we got the business off the ground. And it was it was definitely, you know, it was a good decision. I didn't know what I was doing, but it sure beat trying to get a job in a down market that I didn't even want. Well, yeah, and on that, it's funny because we're coming up on another potential down market or whatever it's defined as now. I think mm-hmm. it's the definition of recession or whatever, but... I guess what what would you say today to somebody? You know, there's a lot of people out there, especially in the great resignation over the last couple of years, that have said, "I'm done with my corporate job." They've gotten more in tune, probably, with you know, life is it could be shut down or you could die at any point, right? So I want to be more purposeful in what I do. I'm I'm a product of that. I'm a somebody from the Great Recession, left a big, high paying corporate gig uh, as an executive to pursue what I felt was more mm-hmm. purposeful for me. But I'll be honest, going into a downturn, it does feel like you know, am I made for this? You know, I, did I pick the wrong time or whatever? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. So what did you do then that you think could translate to now if you were to start this all over again right now or give somebody like me advice? Yeah, it's hard to say because I would say that the downturn stuff, the recession, like timing the market is really hard as everyone always kind of said. Um, But I don't see any less opportunity. I know it sounds so cliche, but I just can't help myself. It's There's no less opportunity in a recession really for a good idea so, and I also think there's a lot of room in great markets for terrible ideas. I mean, look how cheap capital was for the last few years. I don't know how much you pay attention to this stuff. So many people that I know that have absolutely shite ideas, just yeah. garbage that everybody says, that's right. They're like, I raised $4 million at a $28 million valuation. And you're thinking, yeah, you found five idiots. Congratulations. But you know what? The thing is, that's bad for you. Because while you might be learning a lot, yada, yada, do I, if I, I don't want a bad idea of mine to get wind because of economic conditions and people are desperate to put their money somewhere. And then I spend four years building something that actually never had a freaking chance. That's amazing. But people were just like, here's money because I need to put it somewhere. It's like cryptocurrency. There were times in 2017 where you could be like, I have a coin that, uh, you're gonna need it to use the remote control on your television, and I don't know, we're gonna be rich or something, and people would be like, take my money, because it was like Wild West. Yeah. That doesn't mean it was a good idea. People who had really good ideas during the crypto winters, they just slowly built, slowly built, slowly built. They still got funding, there's still money out there for good ideas. They were merciless 
in taking and implementing feedback because everybody's like, I don't know, man, I don't really want to give money to a bad idea. Have you seen the weather outside? It's pretty bad. The environment's not good. So you really find that you build a good product in a down market or you have to have a good idea and you can't just be like a really good salesman to selling people a deck that you made in PowerPoint on the plane on the way there. You have to know what the F you're talking about, at least more so than you do when capital's really cheap. Also, when capital's not cheap in a down market, again, there's still investment and, and you probably will spend less because you get less. And so now you're giving away less equity a lot of the time. You're coming up with ways to get crafty, which is what you really need to be in business. Like you really, uh, to give you an example, I buy a lot of advertising for the Jordan Harbinger show. I spend millions of dollars marketing my podcast. But then my wife was like, hey, could it be hitting a recession? Why don't you tone down the budget? I know we plan for X budget each month. Can you knock that down to as close to zero as we can, just in case we need to pack it in for the recession and, and we don't want our lifestyle to take a hit, just stop growing. Doesn't make sense to grow in a down market as much. So I was like, okay. And then it was like, well, what if I do this? What if I swap this with this? And what if I do this thing and then I trade this for this? And I started getting more crafty. I'm spending way less and marketing way less, but I'm also not, I didn't, scale down to zero. I scaled down to zero spend, but I did a bunch of barters and trades and it's kind of like bargains here. And uh, what if I do this? Can you do more on the back end? I did a lot more than that. And I thought the reason I didn't do this before is because I just had a huge budget and I was like, screw it. Here's some money. Yeah. Right now I actually have to solve the problems. So when I get the money back, I'm not going to turn off all the things I negotiated when I didn't have the budget. I'm just going to run those and I'm going to put the money in on top. So even if I have zero marketing budget, now I've got probably a million bucks a year or close to it in marketing that I'm still running. Or I would say half a million that I'm still running and it really isn't costing me anything. And I built a whole bunch of relationships during that time as well. So I think you really do need to get crafty. And, and so you shouldn't look at the down market as in like, oh, nothing happens now. It's like, well, the dumb money's out, but do you care about that? If so, then you should probably reevaluate what it is you're doing. Because if dumb money is your winning strategy, then yikes. Yeah. So I think during down markets, it's fine. You yeah. know, like you might not sign these big money contracts where companies or the government is like, fine, here's a bunch of, here's millions of dollars because we don't have to put too much scrutiny into these things. You might have to hone your pitch, your product, et cetera. But yeah, there's still plenty out there. I mean, recessions don't mean the economy freezes. It just means that things take a 20% dip or so and people actually have to be careful instead of reckless. Is it is it on the on your end as a podcast? Uh, you have a business with the podcast that's sort of at the top of the funnel, right? That is the that is the major marketing tool. So is it that advertisers are drying up a little bit going into what appears to be a recession or a correction, or is it more that less people have the discretionary capital or, or want to deploy that discretionary capital into your products, or is it both? I don't have products for sale, so there's I don't have any indication on that, but um. It's, I don't actually have a slowdown in advertising either. I, and it also shows you that if your product is really strong, people always find money for stuff that's actually working, which I think is interesting, right? People go, oh, the ad market is terrible. I've taken a 50% haircut. And I'm like, oh, I've taken a 0% haircut. Maybe I'm delayed. Maybe I have a really good sales team. Probably I'm performing better than all these other shows were because I see that I, I've done that in the past. So there, when they go to make cuts, they go, 
huh, well, Jordan's our top performer, so we're not going to cut that guy because he's actually ROI positive. But everybody else who's on the break-even fence or just below, and we're kind of hoping they'd go back up, eh, let's just cut that and try again in January. I don't deal with that because I'm over-delivering for a lot of the people that advertise on my show. I am seeing some things like some company that doesn't track their ads and just does branding awareness. They'll say, ah, we were going to run four ads in Q4. We're going to run two now. Mm. Sorry. That's purely budget. That's them selling less widgets. Can't do much about that. I just fill the inventory with something else. So I'm not really worried about it. But again, I think that goes to having a superior product. Like, I don't want to toot my horn too much, but I think when you are on the top of whatever food chain or game you're playing, you have to worry less about that stuff, right? If, if you're the number one draft pick, you don't really have to worry about there being a recession. Some NBA team is going to grab you because they don't care about the recession. They want the best player in the game. And that's what you should strive to be in your industry if you can. So for you then, I, I resolve this for you. Why cut spend? It almost feels like you should increase. No, like this is the time where, you know, I think of like you get rich in up markets, you get wealthy in down markets. It's the same with, you know, the reach of your podcast or anything mm -hmm. else. Like, that. like So if advertising income or advertising uh, yeah, income is the same, if, if people aren't cutting it, it makes sense. You have an amazing podcast. You're not tooting your horn. It's mm -hmm. a fact. It's a, it's a well, it's a world-renowned <laughs> podcast. Why trim? Why not go for the go for the jugular, if you will? Yeah, I think right now, I could do that, but it's more a function of, okay, do I want to get out over my skis? No, not really. So we don't, while I don't have a lot of fear that we're going to hit a huge recession, I don't really know. So I'd rather keep some money around to buy property. And if that, if that market takes a little bit of a nosedive, I kind of want to deploy the capital there. But yeah, if, if, things keep going and I sign a new deal and I've got like a different guarantee or something like that. And cause I'm pretty insulated from ad markets as it is. Cause you know, you get paid depending on the deal you negotiate, you can get paid a guaranteed amount. So I look for ways to take a risk off of my plate and put them on to put it onto the plate of the network, for example. Mm -hmm. And if I do that, or when I do that, I tend to try and maximize, of course, my, my take. And then, yeah, like, if they're, during COVID, I did this exact thing. People were like, oh my gosh, the markets are screwed. What's everyone gonna do? And I was like, well, those ads that were 30 bucks before, you were pretty cocky. How about 15 bucks? Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, how many do you want? And I'm like, well, if I buy this many, give me give it to me for 10 bucks. And they're like, all right, I need to make a sale because I might get laid off tomorrow. And also, we're not booked for the whole year and it's March, 2020. So I'm like, yeah, I'll take an annual deal, $10, $10 CPM. And it's funny, because so many of those people, two or three months later, when the economy was fine, they're like, hey, I'm gonna have to cancel that annual deal. And I'm like, no, you're not, you can't, I'm gonna sue you. <laughs> like, you can't do that. I have a contract, I negotiated this, and I took the risk. You're not gonna remove the deal, because you can sell the inventory for more. That's not how this works. I don't really, I don't really threaten to sue people. I think it's sort of in, when I say I have a contract, and it's written in black and white, I think that's loud enough for most people to see. But there were a few that were like, we're gonna cancel this. And I was like, you're never going to get my money again. And I'm definitely going to tell anyone who will listen that you do business like this. And that usually, but the thing is, those people were fearful. And I was able to capitalize on that in a way that that was win win until of course, they got a better offer, which is not how things work when you negotiate something. So I did use that opportunity because I thought, hmm, worst case, I still have to pay this bill. 
but I'm not gonna go out of business. And so 2020 hindsight, again, I wish I'd done, I wish I'd gone even harder back then because if we'd known the economy was gonna rebound so well and that I was gonna have such an excess amount of cash, I could have grown quite a bit back then, more than I did. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, 2018, I believe, is when you started the Jordan Harbinger show. You were hosting other podcasts prior to that, and there was sort of a transitionary period between you know, other podcasts and then you starting your own. Um, a lot of turbulence for you in that point. Uh, maybe a, an identity shift or, or a shift in, in what you were, you know, where you were going in, in that time. Can you talk a little bit about that? What what sure. happened and what what became uh, the the impetus for the Jordan Harbinger show? Yeah, I worked on another show for 11 years, and we had a coaching company behind it, and it was doing pretty well, and. I wanted to shift away from dating and relationships, which is what the company was, and I started doing more podcasts that were outside of that niche, and I found that those episodes were quite popular. And so it was like, well, wait a minute, why am I running a dating company on the back end and doing a lead gen product that is something that I'm, it's totally different. You know, I'm interviewing people about like the rise of China and the economy and blah, 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 or like neuroscience, and then it's like, buy this dating thing. And I talked to my business partners about it, and they're like, you know, Um, We're making a lot of money. We don't really care what you're interested in. Just keep bringing in leads. And I was running the sales team. I was doing all the lead gen. I was running the podcast. I was generating podcast advertising. And these guys were kind of like cashing checks and doing some of the coaching on the back end um, that we were selling. And I thought, it's quite an unfair spread we have here, but I'm not gonna complain. You know, we've been doing this for a decade. It's just the way it shakes out. Who knows, the burden might be on them later on for something else, it could be temporary. And then we started hiring consultants to grow because we were doing really well. And those consultants all kind of would pull me aside and go, so you do all of the work that makes all of the money and then you give a bunch of the money you generate to these guys and they kind of do some stuff, but it's worth about 10, 20% of the revenue of the company and your thing does like, everything. I'm just trying to understand why you have it arranged that way and why you make the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. And then they would say things like, you should get paid more. And I'm like, well, I don't want to raise that. And so we had consultants that we'd brought in and they were like, you need to give this guy a raise because he should and could leave. He's undercompensated. And of course, they would immediately just fire that person because they're like, no, my ego says Jordan is not as cool as me. So I'm going to take the money. And and then I started to realize after like the third or fourth guy that said the exact same thing, I, I started to realize maybe they're onto something because I'm not telling them I feel undercompensated. They're literally coming up with this after analyzing everything in our business or they're pulling me aside and they're like, hey, do you want to work with me on something? You've got lightning in a bottle. I don't get what these guys really do. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to do that. I'm loyal to my friends and my business partners, whatever. But eventually I wanted to leave. And they would say things like, we're not gonna let you leave. And I was like, oh, I get it. Now I'm kind of being held hostage here Mm. because these guys really do realize the deal they have with me. And they don't care that I'm not interested in the dating and relationships topics. They're trying to make me do other stupid things that I don't want that are bad looks for the brand, take advantage of our clients. They wanna make more money doing stuff that I think is kind of shady, but it's all my face on everything. They didn't want their face or their name on anything. So I'm like, this is really just gonna make me look bad and they're gonna get paid more, but I'm gonna take the reputational hit and I'm the one that has to like show up and cringe through my own show, not quite fair. So I negotiated leaving and we negotiated an amicable split and 
the day they were supposed to sign, they were like, nah, we're just gonna not honor this. And then I was like, well, okay, I'm gonna start my own thing then because you're jerking me around. Like we tried to rewrite it. My lawyer eventually was like, these guys have no interest in actually doing any, they don't wanna do any good faith negotiation. I've seen this before, they're not interested. They just wanna drag you through the mud and cost this a bunch of money. They're just going to, they, they have no plan. Their plan is to crash and just burn the whole thing. You should start your own business uh, if you want to. They're gonna probably sue you for doing it, but whatever, we'll cross, cross that bridge when we came, come to it. So I went back to my podcast network and they're like, we want, we bet on you. We mm -hmm. want you to do your show. That's what's making us money. So I just started my own show. And of course they, they sued me for competing. They didn't win that lawsuit, but they didn't care. Their plan was just make Jordan feel bad for leaving, try and screw him up. And, you know, looking back on it, the, they, they're, the whole thing they did made no sense unless you look at it through the lens of ego. It was, we can't have Jordan succeed without us because it means that we're the guys that screwed this whole thing up. Mm -hmm. So they would try to do anything to make that be true, even if it meant messing up their own business. And now I look at that business and it, it makes in a year what we used to make in a month. And my current business makes like 20 times the revenue. I mean, it's it it's kind of ridiculous. And it... It really is the best revenge is to live well, but I also look at it and I kind of kick myself because I go, man, all those people that told me to leave for years, this is what they saw for me. I didn't see it for myself. And I wasted so much time trying to play nice, trying to bring my friends up with me, trying to do the right thing, trying to be loyal. And not that there's anything wrong with that, no. but at some point you have to be like, I'm trying to save you from drowning and you keep punching me in the fricking face. I'm right. letting you go. And I, I didn't do that nearly, with nearly the speed I should have. Was there equity involved for you? I mean, you were an owner of the company. Were you not I was an owner. They just outright refused to do anything with it. And then eventually it became really clear when we started doing discovery. Because of course I countersued. Sure. Uh, I was like, I just, just buy my shares. And then it was like, holy crap, you guys have wasted every cent you have on legal fee. You have no money. It's going to take you guys a decade to pay me out. Uh, and now I, and now I look at it and I make that amount of money in fricking three months and I'm like, whatever. But at the time I was like, man, could have used that money. Sure. Could have used that money. Okay. But you know, they were, those were the guys that would take their own business and light it on fire if it meant not having to give you any. And they're still do it. They're still operating like that. I still get notices from people who are like, I'm, suing your former company. I want any documents you might have. And I'm like, Hey, I would love to help you because F these guys, but yeah. you are trying to get blood from a stone. So just forget it and move on. And, you know, they come to that conclusion after a while, but it's, it's almost like every other year I get something like discovery request, subpoena this, or can you call my law office back? And I'm like, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. These guys are losers. You know, they're deadbeats. And so it just shows me this, th they're still doing this crap to employees and contractors. And it's just like, it's a little, it's pathetic at this point, but I also look at it and I go, ah, this is what outside parties were looking at me as doing. And they were like, get out of there. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Cause those people say, no, but they owe me $40,000. And I'm like, just walk away. I know it sounds like a lot of money, but just forget it. Yeah. You know, and I was that guy too. So I get it now. I just wish I could have seen it through somebody else's eyes. Cause I would have walked like four or five years before I did.
What was this experience like? So I've, I've heard Jen uh, interviewed on a couple of different podcasts, one with you, another on her own. And um, she she references this period of time between that podcast and starting the Jordan Harbinger show um, with it feels like emotion, like a level of um, watching somebody she loves go through something really, really trying. Yeah, yeah. See it that way. We're in that time. Was it? Were you aligned? Did that make any sense? Like Jen seeing this as, oh my God, the guy I love most in the world is going through an absolutely epically difficult time. His identity is changing all of this. Yeah. But I, I see from you and I, I feel you a little bit like I'm more like, no, I'm I'm going for I'm sure in the moment you had your dark nights and your sleep nights and all. But yeah. are you aligned on how you view that period? I'm curious how the relationship went in that time. Yeah, it's funny. I don't remember that period as clearly as she does. And like when I've talked to therapists and stuff, they're like, yeah, it was traumatizing. So you've got a totally different thing. And for her, she was more worried. Right. I did have a lot of sleepless nights. I lost some weight and stuff. Like it was really sort of traumatizing for at least like several weeks to even maybe a couple months. I don't even know. That's how blurry it is. But I had so many good, tough people around me and so many good... I don't want to say mentors, but just voices of good folks that were like, you can do this. I would buy stock in Jordan Harbinger, you know, like Inc., that kind of, those kinds of folks and people offering to loan me money and my parents were supportive. But I did feel like, oh, did I screw something up? Like, I feel bad how this turned out. My identity's gone because I was this person who did this show and now the show's gone and they're doing it and the other guy's using my last name and pretending to be related to me, which he's still doing, which is super freaking creepy, but also sort of oh, illustrates how pathetic <laughs> these guys really are. So when I look at that, I, I go, yes, that was really stressful. But at the same time, it felt like in, in, in retrospect, it felt like I just got so tough after that because I used to be like, well, this is the way that is and can't really do much about that. And oh, I'm not really thinking about doing this and this. And, and then after I went through that, I was like, I am going to effing crush the next thing that I do. And this is gonna be so massive, not to prove something to the world, but honestly, to just prove to myself that I can recover from this. And so that's one of the reasons why we went from, oh my God, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna start over? I have to climb this mountain all over again, how it seems impossible, wah, 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 to, okay, where's my next big money deal coming from? What kind of you know, what's the ceiling for me? What kind of income goals do we have? You know, just going from making 5% of what I, how do I say, I'm trying to say this without sounding like gross, but I went from, when I was younger, I never, I didn't care about money. I I still don't really, but I I was like, I want to make the equivalent of about a hundred grand. That's what I was thinking in the nineties. I was like, that's a really comfortable existence. That's like what a dentist makes or something. Perfect. With you, yeah, hundred you know percent. I mean? You know what I'm saying? And then when I started my own company, I was like, I don't have to make that much money because I have flexibility and I run my own ship, and that's worth something. And then I started making more than that, and I was like, cool. And then when I had to start over, I was like, you know what? Now I really run my own ship. I don't care if I make a third of what I thought I was going to make. I'm so much happier now. Yeah. And then it was like oh, when I don't have to share my money with people that just waste it and when I can reinvest it in the business and when I can really control my own destiny, I can build more. And then I started building for the sake of building, not for the financial rewards, just for the sake of building the Jordan Harbinger show. And then it was working and then it was working and it was working. And now here we are. I'm like, okay, I've got this thing that's doing really, really, really well. And I look at what I was doing back then where I was like, I'm making more money than I ever thought I would in my life and I own my own company. And I'm like, what peanuts this guy was satisfied with at that time. And not only financially, but just being treated like crap by your business partners, constant stress, dealing with, frankly, just other people's drama. 
all the time. Um, you know, I, I won't get bogged down in it too much, but I remember there was a time where we were going through a tax audit caused by shady accounting practices done by who, who else? My stupid former business partner who decided to just write everything off even though we told him you can't do that and our accountant told him you can't do that. So we get a tax audit. Our accountant is dead, okay, at that time. He passed away, poor guy. He was nice. He warned us not to do this, but he did it anyway because he's like, I'm dying of cancer, so I'll yeah. do your stupid thing, but this is dumb. We had accountants quitting on us because they were like, this is unethical, I'm not gonna do that. And I'm like, please don't do what you're doing that's causing accountants to quit on us. But this is something he managed on his side of the business. I didn't really know and mess with it. I was doing other stuff. Well, we're going through the tax audit, the, the tax audit attorney that's representing us says, I'm not going to deal with your business partner, I'm quitting. And my wife has to take over the process because my business partner is such an a-hole that he, the lawyer fires us as a client. My wife begs him to come back. We get through the tax audit. And then I realize like, what am I doing with this person who is trying their best to flush their own life and business down the toilet? I'm just hanging on like, I won't let you do this to yourself, why? I, what do I owe you at this point, you know? Yeah. And so I started to just realize I'm holding on to somebody who will figure out a way to F, F up their life. They have, they, this is what they are focused on more than anything else in the whole world is screwing up their own life. Yeah. And I'm like wrapping myself around them as a suit of armor. Why the hell am I doing that? Why am I falling on my sword? And I, I realized that was like an element of my personality that needed to be excised. And the fire that I went through between my old show and my in the Jordan Harbinger show where I wasn't sleeping and wasn't eating and my wife was worried about me, that was me going through that fire. And when I got through the other side a month or two later, whatever the time frame was, that part of Jordan that felt sympathy for people that were gonna screw me over and were screwing themselves over, that had been burned out of me like carbon and steel. No, that's, yeah, I can imagine. So you you literally stepped into your own, I guess your own confidence at that point, yeah. right? Like I am enough, I can do this. And with that, I'm curious. So look, I know you started a podcast back in the days when podcasts weren't really a thing and they weren't really known. So I want to take that answer off the table to this next question, because I'm sure you'll reference the, you know, you've had a long, long run of it, but yeah. what are, what are the, what's the secret sauce for you? What are the three elements of you being a podcaster that make your podcast so successful, do you think? I, I outwork everyone. Pretty much, I think oh, that's- so. what, what do you mean by that, I outwork everyone? So, not everyone, obviously, but when I look at, like you do really good prep, obviously, but when I look at other shows, and when I talk to other podcasters, I'll say, okay, how did you find this guest? Oh, well, um, I saw them on TV. Okay, cool. And then what did you do to prepare? Well, I watched the thing that they were on TV and then I Googled and they had a Wikipedia and I read that and I just like to have free-flowing conversations, so that was that, and I'm like, okay. When I find somebody, I'm doing deep research, somebody sends me the guest, maybe I see them on TV, fair enough, you guests fall in your lap. I then go and buy their book and I read the whole thing cover to cover. I then Google news about them, I look at their Wikipedia, I look at their Wikipedia talk page, I try and find people that know them, I go to their social media, I contact their friends if it's, if it's a, a sort of makes sense to do that, get stories about them, like a journalist would, right? A real journalist. I do actual prep. So then when I do the interview, they're always like, whoa, that's not what I, this is more than I expected because usually a journalist reads the back cover of their book and then says, so tell me what it was like fleeing from Iran during the revolution. And then it's like, your time is half over at that point. Yeah. Give me three takeaways from your trials and tribulations starting a car company. It's just dumb. It's why all the media sounds the same. It's why all the podcasts sound the same. 
I'm trying to dig for other things that most people can't find because they haven't bothered to put in the time. And that's what I mean by outwork everyone. Additionally, I take voice lessons to make sure that my voice sounds good after a long period of time, uh, is varied in pitch, keeps people interested. I learned how to do audio production at a basic level so I can fix problems. I got a professional audio setup. I learned how to set everything up. I learned how to control everything. Um, I still have an engineer, but I still know how to control pretty much everything here. Not as good as him, but I can still do the basics of that job. Um, I know how to market because I figured out marketing because I hired marketers and a lot of them seemed really lazy and I took what I could from them and then fire, you know, got rid of them and got the next one and then realized I could do it all myself. So I do all of the stuff myself. People think I have a team of like 20 or 40 people. No, I have like four people here, maybe six. One of they, them is my wife. I was going to say, your wife I know is the, is kind of the back end. You have an right. audio engineer. What, what do the other folks do then? Yeah, I've got a writer who helps me with the Feedback Friday advice episodes because he's collecting the advice, researching, contacting the subject matter experts, creating the scripts and things like that and leading those shows. Uh, and I've got a video editor, you know, as a contractor. Uh, and that's, uh, and a show notes writer. Yeah, if somebody writes the notes for the show. That's sure. it, man. That's the whole show. And people are like, what about marketing? That's me. What about guest prep? That's me. And I'll talk to these interviewers. They'll go, you mean to tell me you don't have interns skim the book and create a cheat sheet for you? And I'm like, no, but you don't have to tell me that you do it because I've heard your interviews and they're effing terrible, right? Like they're so basic. You clearly haven't read the book. You have no understanding of the material that the person is presenting. You really don't even care. And it shines through as brightly as it can in your lackluster interview where you said, wow, after everything the person said and then wrapped it and took a photo for Instagram. And and that's what I see from a lot of these people in podcasting. They view it as an easy way to make money or something like that, or some sort of networking hack. And they don't care about the content. They don't care about their audience. It's just it's sort of an afterthought. Or those are the people that they're gonna use to sell them some other thing later on. So yeah, I outwork people, but I outwork people in terms of my own prep, in terms of my own skill set, and I know how to do everyone's job at some level. Also, I'm always thinking about how to make things better. I'm never resting on laurels. You know, um, my wife has said, when is enough money for you? And I'm like, it's not a financial goal. I'm constantly evolving the show because I want this show to be of value to the audience in the maximum possible way. So that's why when I, we have our Friday advice shows where we answer listener questions, one of the reasons that those are every week is because I got so many questions from people and I put them in one episode and when people found out they could write to me, I got thousands of letters or I don't even know, thousands and thousands. And I thought, this is not an accident that people are looking to me to solve these kinds of complicated problems. This is of value to people when they hear about it. I should just do a, a show that does this every single week. And so these kinds of things are way more work than sitting down and like getting drunk with a friend and talking about in true crime people getting murdered in parks or something, right? Sure. Yeah. So I will do that. I will go and do that extra work and I will try every product that a sponsor sends me and I will turn down easy money for something I don't believe in that I don't like. And my, that trust is built with my audience and then what happens is my sponsors are happy because the audience trusts me so they buy the things I recommend or they, and they listen to me. My engagement is high and it's a self-fulfilling, it's a virtuous cycle. And right. so that leads to dis, I would say outsized returns in the business. You know, if you have the best restaurant in town for tacos, 
you have 10 times more business than the second best restaurant in town for tacos, or 100 times more business than the second or third best in town taco place. You're the best one. People will wait in line for you. Nobody's waiting in line for Taco Bell. They'll just go to another one, right? Absolutely. So, so that's the way I look at this, is it's like, don't commoditize the product, go the extra mile. There's, outside, there's outsized returns at the top. If you look at the top 1% of podcasts, those are the guys that are getting all the money. If you look at the top 0.01% of podcasts, those guys are getting the absolutely wild money where you go, wait a minute, this knucklehead sits around in his boxers after reading a book, talking to somebody, and he got how many millions of dollars? I hate this person. Where? How did he do that? That's where you want to be. Yeah, yeah. No, no doubt. And you know what? You're you're sort of, um, my wife turned me on to you. Um, that's even a statement that I have to be careful in saying, but my wife turned me on to you. Yeah, um, I was like, oh, did she really? <laughs> she did, she did. Uh, you know, again, there's a, there's a lot of similarity in in uh, in the story. I mean, you know, without being overly comparative, but, you know, corporate person, about the same age, kids are younger, you know, kind of have this pivot toward. And even now, look at this podcast I share with the founders of this GoBundance community, right? Like this isn't my podcast. I think about your past, past podcast, right? So thankfully I, I feel very good about the folks right now, but who knows, you four, we'll see. Could uh, be scumbags. Could yeah, be secret scumbags. You never know. <laughs> but um, but that idea that you mentioned about prep and and the quality, like that's where I focus so much time and energy. You know, is is I do I, the guy I sent you, Michael Santos, read two of his books in advance. I can't tell you how many videos I watched of him speaking, um, TED talks, all of that. So I think all of that is just to say, at the end of the day, hearing from you, kind of my podcast. Uh, what's the word? Uh, you're 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 where I want to be. There's a phrase for that or a word for that. It's not coming to mind right now, but. Um, you know, to hear that from you is is great affirmation, and it just it just goes to speak to the idea that quality will always win. Quality will always win. So I appreciate you affirming that. Um, in the space between the two podcasts, you mentioned your network, and you talked about, and I, I've actually said these words before. I even heard of you, so uh, but I, I'll I'll give them to you, which is like you know uh, the best equity you have is your network, right? So is that where you built the the platform, the structure that you have around networking? Now was it that wow, I just realized all these people that have come and supported me in the space. Wow. Like at that time in my lowest of low, it was the people I know and the people around me that came to be in support. Is that where networking became sort of your specialty? Yeah. I was always somebody who valued relationships and networking actually, but I, I was taught yeah. to do that. You know, yep. I was taught to do that and I did it because I believed in it because I'd seen it work for other people, I guess you would say. But I hadn't really needed, you know, we always say dig the well before you're thirsty. It's an old book title from like the 90s, I think Harvey McKay or something. Yeah. And, and you know, I dug the well and I enjoyed introducing people to each other and good networkers were always really inspiring. And I thought, okay, well, if I ever need anything cool. And, I, you know, I'd called on favors in my network before, calling on people for advice. The same people that I mentioned kept telling me to leave my old company. You know, I sometimes I didn't take the advice. But, you know, I never thought, okay, I'm digging the well before I get thirsty. Nobody thinks, oh, I'm going to be thirsty one day. That's inevitable. But then when I had the business split and it was kind of bad, that's when I was like, oh my God, this is what people are talking about when they're thirsty. And I didn't have to cold call people and be like, so, hey, man, I haven't talked to you for like five years. Uh, I need a job. You know, it wasn't like that. I was just calling. I made a list of like 140 people to call and and talk to. And all of them, except for like three, helped, maybe even two, helped me get back on my feet. Whether it was like, I'm gonna mail this out to my newsletter, I'm gonna uh, 
talk to my group about having you come speak so you get afloat with some cash, you know, quickly, because I know you're probably feeling that right now. I'm gonna talk to this person and sponsor your show. I'm gonna sponsor your show. My company's gonna sponsor this. You know, I had a ton of people like that help me over the next eight months. And that was what really rebuilt my business. And I thought, wow, if if you were like, here's $2 million or here's all 138 people that are gonna help you, I definitely would not have chosen the money. I think I got way more out of the networking support and connections, not even counting the emotional support, just from people helping me out than I would have if I'd been able to deploy capital like that. So it's it's really the greatest insurance mo- policy that money can't buy. Hmm. And you have to build it. And the way that you build it is to create relationships before you need them and then maintain them over time. So that's when I was like, I gotta codify this because this was absolutely game-changing for my business, made me millions of dollars, uh, saved my sanity. It's really something that everybody should know and be doing. So I created the six-minute networking course, the free course, and I I knew I couldn't sell it because I was like, oh, it's gonna be such BS if I sell this thing. Like this is, if you say everyone needs to know something and then you sell it, it's like, I don't know, it's knowledge, you know, it's it's tough. I'd rather people take it for free and then I'll figure out a way to make it. That's, that's another thing with the value though. It's like the show is free, you gotta listen to some ads. The course is free, there's no ads. Uh, I don't email you stuff afterwards, at least not yet, but it's like just take this and master it and when it changes your life, you're gonna be like, that Jordan guy knows what he's talking about. That's all I want, that's all I want is to continue to build trust and referral currency with my audience and with the people who take the course. Yeah, no, I, like when I when I left my job, the skill I didn't realize I had or skill or gift or whatever that was, uh, that was um, I don't know, uh, innate maybe in some ways and I really enjoyed doing was connecting people, networking, mm-hmm. everything you talked about. And an element of that, I've, I've taken, I've gone through your course and I've gotten a lot of value out of it because it really takes, if you enjoy networking, if you, like you said, if you have this sort of general nebulous idea, like, hey, you should always build your network like I always have and like you said, you did, that moment where you were able to kind of cash in on that and realize, oh, wow, let me, I love the word codify. Let me kind of codify this and, and put a structure around it. It's amazing. But the core of it is what I think means the most. I think you have like an ABG, right? Always be generous, meaning give and zero expectation of a return. In fact, I, you talk about, um, uh, at some point you mentioned, you know, somebody that creates a contract with you that you don't realize they're creating the contract. Covert contracts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Talk about that. Talk about giving with no expectation of receiving. So ABG comes from the old like ABC, always be closing. And I was like, that sucks because that's what makes people feel icky when they're dealing with you. That's why most people, when they think networking, they're like, oh, I don't like that. But if you're ABG, you're always be giving or always be generous. Then it's like, oh, this guy's awesome. Whenever I talk to him, he's always like, what are you working on? This? Oh, I know the best web guy around. You you said you were making a new website. Can I introduce you? Do you need a designer? Da, da, da. And then they, they, they don't go, by the way, can you buy my mastermind product on hiring the right web team? You know, they don't do that. They don't go, I need a speaking gig. Can you put my name in the hat? They don't do that. They just give you something that you're looking for that you need. And I was like, that's really the key. So ABG, always be giving, always be generous. And then the covert contracts thing is when people say they're doing the ABG thing, but they're really not. So those are the people that that say, oh, I'm gonna introduce you, I'm gonna help you out, I'm gonna introduce you to this person and help you out. And then when you get that from them, later on they're like, hey, I've got a new book coming out, can I be on your podcast? And you're like, no, it's not really a great fit. And they're like, dude, I don't know, man, I introduced you to like this guy and I thought we were cool. And I'm like, oh, I see, you're secretly keeping score. Yeah. So 
rather than having the intended effect of making me feel guilty and wanting to have you on my podcast, now I go, I'm never going to pick up the phone for you again. I'm never going to answer any of your emails again because every time I engage with you, you're marking a tally mark on the prison wall of your mind saying, Jordan owes me another one, and you're going to quote unquote cash this in. And then when I, when I don't do that, now you're mad at me about this and you're gonna be passive aggressive or you're gonna withhold something from me. Rather than try to guess where your head's at all the time, I'm just going to never engage with you again. And I'm never going to introduce anyone to you again because I know you operate this way. And I've, I've lost a few so-called friends who like doing that stuff. But those people, I can't help but notice those people are not very successful because they constantly operate that way. And whenever you hear somebody say, I don't wanna make that introduction now because I might need it later, you know you're talking with somebody who does not understand relationships or networking. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I think uh, I think the, the the admission on my part would be I've done both. I've been the guy that maybe, like as you say, and I've probably score kept a couple of times. Mm. Like, Man, I've been so good to this person, I, you know, whatever, the one time I need him. Uh, but I've also been the person, and probably more recently, I should say, in the last few years, I've understood the value. It's just, it's so, it's hard to think about. It's hard to score keep, right? So just mm -hmm. kind of giving because it's fun to give and being generous with people, it's actually returned me more without me ever asking for it, right? The, yeah, and the thing is, look, if if you say I introduced you to a bunch of people and then you wanted to be on my show and it's not a fit, you can understand that. Okay, you're not keeping score if you make the ask. That's not the part that's keeping score. Mm -hmm. The part that's keeping score is you then getting huffy that I d put a boundary up that's appropriate for me. On the flip yeah. side of that, let's say that you introduce me to somebody and then you do it again and then you want an introduction and it's really not gonna cost me anything to do it, but I withhold that from you because I currently don't need anything from you. Now you have a right to be like, oh, that guy's just a taker. That's mm -hmm. different. Yeah. But somebody drawing a boundary, that's appropriate. And you have to, it's it's sort of tough to see who's a taker and who's drawing a really normal boundary. You know, if I ask you to write the forward for a book that I have after I've helped you do the same and it's not gonna cost you anything, maybe my ghostwriter will do it with your help after a phone call, you should do that. But if I'm asking you to speak at an event and I'm shilling multi-level marketing protein shakes and you think it's bad for your brand and then I get huffy when you won't do that, that's a me problem. Yeah. And at that point you go, if you're not willing to understand why that's a boundary for me, I, we have no future business working together because you're, you're more than willing to let me sully my brand for you to make a dollar, so that's inappropriate. So you do have to kind of be careful with it but you should always err on the side of generosity. You know, if it's not really going to be a problem for you, and and even if it is gonna cost you something, but you owe that person something, go for it. If you don't think it's gonna be a negative outcome, I don't wanna be pressured into doing something for somebody because they tell me I owe them one, and I look at that and I go, if I do that, I'm gonna look like a, sh a shill, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna sell your financial scam to a bunch of strangers because you wrote the forward to a book or you came on my podcast, not gonna happen. I love but that. You, a lot of people online are more than willing to make those kinds of horse trades. No, that's a great point. And your point about the ask, I think that's something that I've always, I've always probably uh, struggled with. To your point, it's not the ask that is the taker. The the taker is the one who makes the asks and doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand. Gets huffy, like you said, uh, with the fact that that person may not, you know, that may not work for them. You know, and or, and or just or just won't help you at all because they don't give a crap. You're dead to them unless they need something from you. Those are takers, and there's plenty 
of those people as well. One guy, when I said everybody helped me get back on my feet, uh, except for one or two people, I remember who those two people are. Those are the people, in fact, unfortunately, those people stick out as much as some of the people that did help me. And one of them, and I, I wish I were kidding, but it shows me how sort of he almost is mentally ill to the point of narcissism. narcissism. He said, you're not really famous or popular anymore, so I don't really wanna have you on my show because I only want big names because that's how I build my brand. And I was like, I've literally had you on three times for your books. Yeah. We've been friends for years, but now I fell off my horse and instead of going, hey man, I'm gonna help you get back up, you literally go, well, you probably can't do anything for me anymore, so I'm not going to ever help you. And now what's funny is, that person's agents and stuff reach out to me like, hey, we'd love to have so-and-so, back," and I'm like, that person is not going to get, I'm like, Zen meditation, delete. Because what I wanna do is be like, here's why you should go F yourself. And here's the, like, you know, I really, yeah. I'd love to to do that at some point. Like the devil on my shoulders, like do that. But it's been so long that I, I, I kind of, of course would never do that. But I remember at the time, the demoralizing feeling of having somebody you thought was your friend tell you, well, you're not really important to me anymore because you're not famous. And I remember being like, you're a disgusting person. Right. I can't believe I was friends with you. Wow, 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 wow. Man, I could go another hour with you, but we're coming up against and I want to respect your time. I mean, the, you know, there's things like the double opt-in intro I want to talk about and even uh, bandwidth, because I, I do the bottom five texts from last year thing, oh, yeah. doing that, which has been really effective. But then I'm like, man, there's so many people in my world again. Like, how do I keep up with it? But another time maybe, but we'll sure. see what happens. Jordan, what, uh, what's the best place for people to reach out or, or uh, follow or, you know, whatever you want to drop in here? Sure, yeah, I'm, look, I'm at Jordan Harp. The Jordan Harbinger Show is where I keep my podcast, jordanharbinger.com. So you can find me at Jordan Harbinger on all social media as well. But I'd love it. If people listen to podcasts, I think they'll like the Jordan Harbinger Show. Obviously, you and your wife both do, and I thank you for that. So thank you very much for the opportunity to come and chat today, man. It's been great. I appreciate you, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see what happens from here. I appreciate you. Thanks, man. Take care. Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week -week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon.